Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Rachel McKinnon, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the College of Charleston. Her new book, The Norms of Assertion, Truth, Lies, and Warrant, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. One of the important ways we use language is to make assertions, roughly to pass on information we believe to be true to others. Insofar as we need to learn by means of what others tell us, assertion is a speech act that addresses this need. It also follows norms, Ordinarily, we shouldn't assert things that we believe to be false, and when we do, we have violated a norm of assertion. In her new book, McKinnon argues against the prevailing idea that you do need to know what you assert, and she holds that we can even blamelessly assert something that we know to be false. Instead, she defends a reasons-based norm in which the end goal of transmitting knowledge to others can be fulfilled by asserting falsehoods, and in which whether we have satisfied the norm depends in part on the conventional and pragmatic context in which we make our assertions. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Rachel McKinnon. Are you there? I am. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, The Norms of Assertion, Truth, Lies, and Warrant. Uh, which is a, a very provocative book that challenges the, I guess, the prevailing view or the most prominent view nowadays of, of what it is to assert something warrantedly. Um, before we get into the details of the book, I'd like to start with a little bit of background uh, on how you got to philosophy and how you came to write this particular book. Um, and in your case, you had a, a footnote at one point where you mentioned that, you're a, that you used to be a professional poker player uh, for six years or something, and uh, that you never had a you know, net losing month during that entire time. So uh, I suppose connecting the docs here includes not just how you got to philosophy, but how you got from poker to philosophy to norms of assertion and philosophy of language. Sure. Well, uh, I didn't start my undergrad in philosophy, which I've come to realize is pretty normal. Uh, I was actually in kinesiology or sports science and eventually transitioned into chemistry. And I was on a work term thinking about sorts of questions about the scientific method and, you know, how ought we think about these things. And I realized that philosophy is where these questions were being asked and attempted to answer. So I found myself you know, transitioning to philosophy because that's where the questions I wanted to think about were being done. Uh, poker, 
I've always been a competitive person. I've been a competitive athlete my whole life. And I was uh, living in a basement apartment and the landlord ran a weekly poker game. And I was living on not so much money per month at the time and saw poker as possibly a way to make a little bit extra money. Uh, And I did. I started winning almost immediately. And being a studious person, started reading internet forums and a large collection of books on how to get better. And then it just sort of developed into a way to make a lot of money. So uh, it became my primary source of income about a year later. And I even took two years off between my master's and my PhD. And I played poker full time, uh, about four hours a day. And it was an interesting time. So uh, and in Canada, it's tax-free, so it, it was a very nice source of income. Um, but I realized that I, while writing my master's thesis, that I was, would miss it and always thought that I would go back and do a PhD. And originally, uh, partly, I think, because I was playing poker, I was thinking a lot of decision-making and what it, what it takes to make a good decision. So mm-hmm. I originally wanted to do a dissertation on decision-making and decision theory, And while working towards that, we had um, a job opening and uh, the people giving their job talks. And one person, John Turry, came and spoke about the norms of assertion. And he's a knowledge norm advocate. And I remember hearing his talk and thinking, that just can't be right. And my interest in the topic was sparked because of someone's job talk. And that was it. I I was hooked. And that's the topic I've been working on for the past X number of years. That's cool. That's cool. So, um, well, I mean, so we're we're talking about both philosophy of language and epistemology, right? Because it's not just, um, you know, making a decision, right, as with decision theory, but it's also expressing that in a responsible way. Um, to other people, and for the purpose, you know, generally speaking, of of transmitting knowledge, right? You know, very closely related to testimony, right? Which makes yeah. it very important. Um, uh, and that's how we get to the idea of of norms of assertion. Like, when when are you, you know, doing a good job uh, in terms of of transmitting? Well, in terms of asserting, I don't want to say transmitting knowledge, but uh, we can get into those details. Um, but that's, of course, one of the reasons why, as you just mentioned, with, with John Turi's work, I mean, he's a proponent of the, the knowledge norm, um, which roughly says, you know, you, you're not entitled, you shouldn't assert anything uh, unless you know it, right? That's when you're warranted. Um, but let's, uh, you start the book with, uh, you know, the basics. Um, what is an assertion? And, and then what is a norm? Uh, so can you say a word about these two kind of basic background concepts and, and how you see them? Um, uh, and then explain also what type of a norm uh, is the one that you defend, which you, which you call the supportive reasons norm as opposed to a knowledge norm. Uh, yeah, so what what... Uh, what's, what are assertions, what are norms, and what kind of a norm is the supportive reasons norm? Sure. So there are a variety of things that we can do when we utter things. We call these different types of things speech acts. So there's 
things like assertions when we make a claim or there are questions, there are commands, there's a wide variety. So what characterizes assertions typically is that there's a proposition that we express, so something that can be true or false, and the speaker takes on some sort of social commitment to defend that assertion if they're challenged. For example, if someone says, how do you know, or that's false, we have some sort of social responsibility to respond. Uh, and assertion's particularly important, not only because you mentioned that it plays such an important role in testimony and how we transmit knowledge to other people, um, but when we assert something, something happens for the hearer, namely, one, they get some sort of permission to reassert. So if I, if you ask me what the weather will be like tomorrow and I give you an answer, well, if a friend of yours asks you what's the weather going to be like, my telling you gives you some sort of permission to tell the other person. But also, you can use the assertion, the proposition, as a premise in your practical reasoning. For example, deciding about what to wear, whether to take an umbrella and so forth. Um, so that's generally what we take to characterize assertion. And then there seems to be this very strong intuitive sense that there's a way to do it well and a way to do it wrongly. And that's when we're talking about norms. So norms are what it takes to engage in a practice well. And then the big debate is, you know, what is that norm for assertion? Uh, most of the focus has been on some sort of epistemic standard, um, so you have people articulating largely the knowledge norm that you should assert only if you know what you're talking about. Um, other people, you know, one person is articulated a certainty norm. Uh, other people have suggested a reasonable belief norm, so on and so forth. Well, when we think about norms, they, some of them, we call them constitutive norms, tend to create the practice and help define the practice as what it is. So we tend to think of the norms of assertion in terms of constitutive norms. So they characterize assertion and partly make it the practice that it is. Um, and that's a bit different from other things like what we might call regulative rules or the sorts of rules that describe people's behavior. So when we're someone's arguing that knowledge is the norm of assertion, they're not saying that people actually only assert when they know, and we violate norms all the time, but they're articulating what it takes to assert properly, and if you don't satisfy the norm, then you've done something wrong. Does that answer the question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let me, let me just um, ask another sort of related question. Uh, um, how do you see norms as related to goals? Because I know this comes up later in your discussion of the knowledge norm, but just in general, I mean, what 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 do you think is the relationship there between the norms that we hold for a practice and the goals of the practice? Right. This plays a really important role in my view. Um, so this is really about the nature of norms and how we understand the content of a norm. So why would one think it's knowledge or why would one think it's what my view is the supportive reasons norm? Well, my view is a norm is what it means to properly aim at achieving a goal or the goal of a practice. So I take it for the sake of argument that when we're asserting the goal of doing so is expressing knowledge and then we derive the content of the norm to what it or 
what it takes to assert properly from what it means to properly aim at that. And so then we're thinking about the performance of assertion and, and what's called performance normativity. Okay. Um, okay, I'm glad we got that out kind of early because it does come up later um, in the book, of, in fact, in your chapter on performance normativity. Um, but let me, let's just um, get into your norm a little bit, which you call the supportive reasons norm. Um and you put it in a, what you call a family of norms, uh, along with uh, Jennifer Lackey has defended a reasonable to believe norm. And uh, uh, Igor Duvin's rational credibility rule. Yeah. Um, so those two, uh, along with yours, form what you, you consider to be a family of norms and which, which depend on reasons rather than knowledge. I, I take it that's one of the basic features they have in common. Um, can you say something about uh, about your norm, you know, what, what it involves and how it differs from these others that are in the same family? Yeah. Uh, so I, I put it in that family because we all require having some sort of rational or epistemically reasonable support, um, not necessarily epistemic justification, but something like it, something in that area. And all of these views do not require truth for warrantily asserting. So that's a big distinguishing feature between these views and the knowledge norm, since knowledge is factive, it requires truth. Um, but none of these views think that truth is required for warrantily asserting. We all think that there are some warranted false assertions. So that's one thing that characterizes my view. But uh, the main feature of my view is that it's heavily context sensitive in a way that none of the other views are. Even uh, Sandy Goldberg's recent view, which is context sensitive. Well, mine is rather extremely context sensitive. So it depends on a wide variety of social features uh, such that I think there are some contexts where one can warrantedly assert what one knows to be false. So, I mean, this is the, the central case of, of the book is sort of teaching cases where we know what we're saying is false, but we're still doing something proper there. And it's epistemically proper. That's sort of what's really interesting about the view. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, go ahead. I think we're going to get into that a bit later, but that's sort of the, the bare bones of the view is that uh, it takes some sort of epistemic reasons as a requirement and what it takes to satisfy the norm, what it takes to have those reasons depends on the context of the assertion. Okay. So the, the main, uh, the main imposing view, you know, that, that takes up a, a bulk of your sort of defensive moves in the, in the book, as opposed to the, the, the chapters where you, where you uh, lay out your, your view um, is, as we mentioned, the, the knowledge norm. Um, which, yeah, John Turry, Timothy Williamson, and others um, hold. And um, so can you say something about what what motivates the knowledge view and, and what you think the big problems with it are that, that in turn, I guess, motivate your view in part? So a lot of the debate takes, uh, takes a, a wide variety of 
what we call linguistic data or just observations of the ways we talk to each other and people's intuitions about improper or proper assertions. And one thing that really motivates the knowledge norm is there seem to be many cases where we criticize an assertion when someone doesn't know what they say or what they're talking about or the thing that they say isn't an instance of knowledge for them. And for that wide variety of data, the knowledge norm is a very simple explanation and it's a very unifying explanation. So one of the appeals of the knowledge norm is not only does there seem to be some evidence supporting it, but it very neatly explains all of it, or at least that's the argument. Um, so I think there is there's an appeal there and there's an appeal to simplicity. Uh, what do I think one of the main problems with it is? Well, I think it gets a lot of the cases wrong. So I think there are certainly many instances of warranted assertions where the speaker doesn't know the proposition that they assert. So I, I understand the appeal of it, but I, I think it gets some very important cases just wrong. So can you can you give an example of one of one of those particular cases? Well, I think one of the cases that many people seem convinced by, um, although I've certainly knowledge norm people aren't convinced, but uh, Jennifer Lackey's selfless assertions are cases where a speaker asserts something that they don't believe, but they think the evidence best supports. And in their position or their role as, say, a teacher or a doctor, they are asserting you know, based on what they think it takes to satisfy that role. But since they don't believe it, and belief is a necessary condition for knowledge, what they assert isn't knowledge. Well, if you're a knowledge norm person, this is a problem. And quite a lot of the debate is over this sort of case. Other cases are ones where, at least what I think, we have very, very good evidence that something is true. And we assert that proposition in light of our evidence, but through something like epistemic bad luck, it turns out to be false. And it seems when we think about these sorts of cases that the speaker's done everything they should to assert properly, and it seems like they've done something praiseworthy, even though it turned out to be false. So these are sort of the central two types of cases, the warranted false assertions and then these selfless assertions where the speaker doesn't believe what they say. Okay, so um, um, as you mentioned before, there is this this central case in your in your um, presentation of your view, um, which involves a a case of uh, Jenny, the physics teacher, a high school physics teacher actually, yeah. um, who ex- explains to her students, um, you know, something to the effect of you know electrons orbit around atomic nuclei when she knows very well that they don't, um, they don't have trajectories in quantum mechanics. So she knows it's false, um, and yet she asserts it anyway to her students. Um, and on your view, uh, you know, this, this would be a case that obviously violates the knowledge norms, and she knows it to be false. Um, but on your view, it is, you know, normatively perfectly fine. I mean, um, so can you, can you lay out the, that case for us and, and, and the work, and tell us the work it does for you. Yeah, I mean, the book is really based on this case. It's built around this case. So this is how 
uh, physics is actually taught. There's quite a large literature in physics education talking about why they still teach it this way. So what you're describing in terms of electrons orbiting like planets, um, a nucleus of an atom is the Bohr model of the atom, uh, which we now know to be false because we uh, believe that the what we call the valence model is true, where rather than orbits, we talk about probability clouds. And for quite a while, people would think that the Bohr model was maybe approximately true, although mostly false, and it's approximately true of the valence model. But since classical mechanics is incommensurable with quantum mechanics, the Bohr model isn't even approximately true. So when the physics teacher teaches the Bohr model and presents it as true, she's asserting electrons behave according to this model, the Bohr model. And since she knows it to be false, well, if we think this is a warranted assertion, then the knowledge norm has a really big problem. It can't account for this at all. But even um, views like Jennifer Lackey's reasonable to believe norm can't account for this either, because it's not reasonable for the teacher to believe this proposition if she knows it to be false. So we need something else to explain this. And my norm does. Um, part of what I argue is that while we, in order to properly assert, have to properly aim at expressing knowledge, well, she's not aiming at expressing knowledge about the Bohr model. She's using this as a stepping stone concept for students to eventually come to learn the valence model. It turns out that in science education, that sometimes we have to teach false models in order for students to be ready later on to learn what we take to be true models. Um, so we need a norm that is se uh, sensitive to context shifts to be able to account for this. And that's sort of the defining feature and what really sets my view apart. So the context here is is a pedagogical one, at least in that case. Um, Definitely. Where, uh, you know, the goal is clearly to impart, you know, is is your 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 goal is to impart knowledge to your students and you're you're taking them partly partly there by asserting something that you know to be false. Um let me well let me let me take a somewhat different case which is not so constructed. I, I mean I, I was thinking about, you know, different sorts of ways in which one might say, well, you know, uh well, you, you did mention that, well, the Bohr model is incommensurable uh, with, the, with the quantum mechanical theory. Um, and that's, that's actually pretty important, I think, because it, it, it implies some sort of a, you know, just a complete disconnect between the two, between the proposition that electrons have orbits and the proposition that they um, have orbit holes. Um, and that's, that's kind of important because it, 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 it means that whatever you're doing when you're aiming at um, at this eventual knowledge, um, somehow the connection is not through co concepts that are somehow connected. And so I'm, I'm sort of wondering, you know, just taking your case as you just explained it, how do you get that connection from 
asserting a falsehood that is incommensurable with the truth at which you're aiming? Um, well, so I think the connection comes through, like, why would we assert this thing? Why would we assert the Bohr model? And I think this will come up later in different discussions of lying, that there is an important epistemic connection between the two. There's an epistemic reason why we're asserting the Bohr model, and that's because it helps students eventually learn what we take to be true. If there isn't that connection, if there isn't that epistemic in terms of goal-seeking connection, then we don't have the warrant. So there are going to be lots of cases where we think we want to assert something false because of, say, we don't want to hurt someone's feelings, but that won't have the important epistemic connection to some eventual expression of knowledge or aiming at knowledge. And it's really that epistemic connection that's doing all the work. Right, right. Um, So let me, let me, right. And I don't, I don't, you know, it's it's a very important that your norm is is an epistemic norm. It's it's not like, you know, I would never, you know, like the the classic case of a of a you know a wife who asks her husband, "Do I look fat?" and he says, "No," um, and he doesn't believe that, um, and he's asserting something that he knows to be false. But you know that that's not an epistemic pr- question. It's it's like for the sake of you know social or personal relationships or something. So it's a norm of personal relationships rather than an epistemic norm. And yours yeah. yours is an epistemic norm. And that's that's kind of why I'm I'm, you know, interested in, in the connection between, you know, what is asserted, the falsehood that's asserted and the, the truth that is eventually going to be reached. Let me let me give a somewhat different case. Um so there was this famous I remember always remember uh, Tony Morrison had this wonderful line, you know, that often got got quoted in the press, um, where she said that Bill Clinton was our was America's first black president, and um, this is, I mean, so clearly um, this was false. Um, she knew it was false, um, and yet she asserted it, and you know, it, it seems like. You know, plausibly, this would be a case that, I mean, it's, it's not a clearly pedagogical context in any way. Um, um, how would, how does your view kind of handle that sort of case? Was she, was she, a, she was using a falsehood to get to a truth? Um, uh, I, I'm guessing. I mean, how, how would you describe that view? I mean, is that, is that, is what Tony Morrison did uh, warranted? Does it follow your norm? Yeah, I think that is a really interesting case. Um, I'm not entirely sure what my view will say on this, um, but I think so. Most of the cases where I was thinking uh, that really provide a wedge between my view and other reasons-based views like Lackey's or Duvin's uh, are pedagogy-based. But I think this sort of political move, this political truth that she's trying to express is another good candidate. Um, So I think that that's exactly the sort of story that I will tell here, that while strictly speaking, the proposition, if the proposition is Bill Clinton is 
a black person, which we know to be false, then clearly she's expressing something false, something she knows to be false. Um, but it's warranted because it expresses something politically important that is also true that namely uh, the idea being he uh, represents sort of black interests as a president in a way that's somewhat unprecedented in history and that that would warrant her assertion of something she knows to be false. So I think it's a really interesting case. Okay. So, um, uh, well, I, I guess um, maybe you can say more about the context because you, as you mentioned before, your view is is distinguished, you know, from the others um, uh, because it is so heavily context dependent. Um, so, can you say a bit more about the ways in which it's context dependent and and what makes your view more heavily context dependent than than others. Yeah, so there are a variety of ways to make a view context sensitive. So um, you could be a contextualist in epistemology about uh, the truth value of the verb to know. Um, So that usually comes down to, is it true that John knows that P? And so if you think that the way that the verb knows functions depends on context. That would be one way to get a context sensitive norm. So Keith the Rose has a knowledge norm that's contextual in that sense. Um, another one is sort of Sandy Goldberg's view, which is in a family of context sensitive norms like mine, where the sort of social uh, standing, uh, social roles social norms of speakers and audiences determines in part what it takes to act properly in that situation. Uh, The reason why mine is more extreme than his is, you know, his view is very close to a knowledge norm. It's just not quite a knowledge norm. (laughs) Um, Mine will go farther in what it will consider. So things like the speaker's role as a teacher and the sort of, fiduciary or trust-based relationships between the speaker and the hearer and how that can drive things like the, the Jenny, the physics teacher case. Um, so also I think in some cases, social conventional norms like politeness play some role in what we ought to assert. Um, and even in the end of the book, I start talking about how social gender norms and racial norms also impact what it takes to properly assert. So the breadth of considerations that my view includes in what sets a conversational context is sort of wider than most other people's views. Okay, so so is the idea that um, all these other sort of conventional and pragmatic, you know, non-epistemic uh, features of a context um, uh somehow support the epistemic warrant that an assertion has? Yeah, they they help set the epistemic standard. Um, so while I always argue that, you know, you need supportive reasons, well, what does it take to have supportive reasons? Well, that's determined in part by the context. So uh, do you need lots of evidence? 
Well, if you're in a high stakes court context, for example, then to warrantedly assert under oath in a murder trial, uh, you'll need lots of evidence to make a claim. Whereas in a low stakes conversation over dinner, well, the standards of evidence are much, much lower, and that's determined in part by the context of the conversation being one over dinner rather than a courtroom. Okay, okay, good. So um, let me get back to uh, the, you know, asserting a falsehood, because that, obviously that's a, that's a key kind of question here, right? It's, it's kind of the fundamental difference, at least between uh, any belief-based uh, or reasons-based norm like yours, or and a knowledge norm. Um, how how do you distinguish between uh, somebody who is lying and somebody who is asserting a falsehood? So this is where I like to lean on Jenny Saul's latest book on lying, misleading, uh, and what it what is said. I believe is the title. Yeah. So she makes a really nice distinction uh, between lying and misleading. And her view of lying, I think, is a fairly common one, that to lie is to assert something you believe is false. But that doesn't require that what you say is actually false. So you can aim at saying something false, but miss your target, you know, through bad luck, I guess, and accidentally say something true. So there's some true lies. The same sort of on the flip side for assertions, to assert properly is to aim at expressing knowledge, but there might be some cases through no fault of your own, through something like epistemic bad luck, where you're aiming at saying something true, expressing knowledge, but you miss the target. So you can still say something false, but you're aiming at saying something true, whereas lying is when you're aiming at saying something false. So that's the distinction. Lying is aiming at saying something false, whereas aiming at truth but failing is another way to say something false, but it's not lying. Okay, so it has to do with the, I guess, the intention of the why one is is asserting this proposition to begin with. Is that exactly right? okay? Um, okay, so um, let me let me just ask about. Uh, again, some of the specific challenges that you that you um, discuss in relation to the knowledge norm. Uh, there are a number of different features that, as you mentioned before, the knowledge norm is supposed to handle very well. Uh, and you do, you don't say that they don't handle it. You just say that your norm handles them better. Uh, these include uh, dealing with the lottery paradox, right, where you assert now before the lottery has been decided that, you know, this ticket is not going to win. Um, or uh, Moore's paradox, for example, when you have a proposition and, you, and then you conjoin it with the proposition that I don't believe the proposition, um, which is perfectly fine logically, um, but it just seems very, very strange. Um, and then challenges to knowledge. Uh, how do you know, right? You assert something and somebody says, well, how do you know that? Um, how do you, can you consider these, these different challenges to, or these different reasons that people hold the knowledge norm and why you think the supportive reasons norm does a better job of dealing with these cases? Yeah, so these are really the three central arguments 
used for the knowledge norm. And then anyone who wants to argue against the knowledge norm usually has to take on all three of these. So I think of these as three legs of a stool. And what I'm doing in the book is basically kicking out each leg of the school stool, saying that the knowledge norm really doesn't have that much to stand on. So there's a pattern in how I deal with these. Well, essentially, even if we grant that one part of the explanation for why some of these assertions seem inappropriate is that the speaker doesn't know, we can ask, well, why don't they know? And the pattern is that, well, they seem to lack adequate epistemic reasons or justification. And if that's the case for each of these, then a lack of justification is really doing the explanation. It's not really that they don't know that's explaining it. So a lot of these arguments seem more directly to support a reasons-based norm rather than knowledge. In a sense, the knowledge norm is um, riding on the reasons-based norm explanation. So in the case of lottery propositions, when we assert about a lottery ticket based on its high probability of losing, this ticket will lose, we seem to have this strong intuition that that's inappropriate. And the knowledge norm says, well, it's because you don't know. And the reasons-based norm person, such as myself, says, okay, um, I grant that you don't know, and I have a story about why, but, well, the story is that you're not justified, and we don't need the knowledge norm to explain this fact anymore. We just need a reasons-based norm. And then when we think about things like Moore's paradox, uh, or Moorean assertions, such as it's raining, but I don't believe it, or dogs bark, but I don't know it, well... You're right that they don't, there's nothing logically wrong. They don't express a contradiction in any sense. But there seems to be something rationally wrong there, that there's some sort of conflict. Um, They seem to clash. And again, what explains it? Well, I have an account that I developed with Paul Smart Smith that the clash is not one of belief or knowledge, but one of assertoric authority that when we make when we make an assertion, we express a proposition, we're sort of putting our authority behind it. But then when we say we don't believe it or we don't know it, we seem to suggest that we don't have the authority to assert and that that's explaining the Morian assertions. We need not uh, appeal at all to knowledge to explain this data. So really with the Morian case, I argue that it doesn't really support any of the norms it can be handled by any of the norms using this assertoric authority view of Morian assertions. And then with the challenges data, things like how do you know, or do you even know that, or is that even true? Well, I, I think that there's something really important in the how do you know part of how do you know? And that's because the the question isn't challenging whether you know, but it's asking for your reasons or your evidence. And it seems all of these challenges go to something like, what what is your evidence for this assertion? And so that seems not to directly challenge your knowledge, but indirectly through your evidence or reasons. And so again, like with the lottery paradox data, the how do you know stuff seems to directly support or suggest a reasons-based norm and only derivatively maybe a knowledge norm. So when taken individually... I think a reasons-based norm better explains the lottery paradox data and the challenges data, and it's a wash on Moore's paradox. 
So if we look at the data individually, I think a reasons-based norm is doing better than the knowledge norm. And then when we look at the data all taken together, it seems best explained by something like a reasons-based norm. Okay, so this this kind of gets to um, your chapter on performance normativity because you emphasize, you use the analogy of, you know, aiming to hit a target and somebody can be, uh, a you know, an Olympic archer and do the perfect thing, be in the zone. Um, and then just before the arrow hits the target, a bird flies down and knocks it off course or something. And... Uh, the performance part is is fantastic. It, it it satisfies every possible norm to the maximum, um, and they just didn't reach the target. But that's not their fault, right? So there's this element of luck, um, and that that seems related to your arguments about the paradoxes and these challenges that. Uh, What's doing the work here, I take it, is is the fact that you've got reasons and whether you actually like really know whether you, you know, hit that knowledge target is, well, that's nice, but it's really not what we're judging here. We're judging the performance, uh, not whether you reached the goal or not. Is that is that a adequate way to kind of put your view? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so I want to say in cases like the arrow that if you've expertly aimed and you take your shot and the arrow is headed directly for the bullseye, but some sort of bad luck out of your control intervenes, then you still made a good shot. We don't want to judge the quality of your performance, whether it was a good performance or not, based on the outcome. And this relates to um, not just sort of being an athlete and thinking about sports, but going back to poker and the way that poker players think about luck, but also uh, analyzing whether a bet was good or not. And I think poker players out of necessity, if they're good ones, have fairly sophisticated views on what luck is and how to think about luck and its rather large role in our careers, um, even though I don't really play poker anymore. Well, the site of evaluation is when the bet was made, it is not the outcome. So if you say you're playing Texas Hold'em and someone makes a bet all in preflop and you're holding pocket aces, you had better call. No matter what they have, you should be calling. And that's the evaluation of the performance is right there. We haven't even asked, did you win or did you lose? And the way poker players think about outcomes is if you try to determine whether you should call or fold based on the outcome, we, we refer to that as being too results oriented. And that's a mistake because we want to evaluate things at the time that you're making the choice, not based on the presence or absence of things like good or bad luck. And so I think that of assertions the same way, the same way we should think about all types of performances, the performance normativity is... Uh, cited at the moment of the performance, not based on outcomes which can be subject to good or bad luck. Okay, so I guess one of one of the questions I was thinking about when I when I read that chapter was, um, well, the extent to which, in actual circumstances, 
we don't actually judge people by by the outcomes. I mean, we do judge them by outcomes as well, and whether we're whether we're we're right to do so or not. I guess maybe that's the maybe that's the fundamental point. Even uh, so, we often. I mean, even even though we know that people are not responsible for for many outcomes, you know, maybe what they do is only thirty percent of what it takes to actually achieve the outcome, uh, like like getting a job in philosophy or something. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, you could do all the right things and act normatively, and yet at the end of the day, you know, when you end up after the whole interview season and everything is over and you you come up without a job uh there's still this tendency to think that somehow it was your fault right that that's something you did you know and and that's both on the part of the candidate who thinks you know what did i do wrong what should i change in my cv what do i you know should i try to get my dissertation published and you know i mean the the blaming of, of oneself drives certain behaviors but also other people also tend to not uh, not recognize the the role that uh, well they recognize the role of luck but somehow the individual will still be held accountable for not having gotten the job in some way um, and so I'm wondering the extent to which the rash the 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 performance normativity that you're talking about here is is sort of a, a, an ideal as opposed to the way we actually uh, assess people's performances. And I'm, and I'm not saying in certainly in poker, uh, the best players ignore the luck aspect or, you know, they they judge on based on the, the performance, the cards they can see and so forth. Um, and so there's a, a there's certainly rational reasons um, which in the long run will make you a better player, uh, but in the in the wider context uh, we we don't seem to reason that way always we we sh- maybe we should uh, but we don't so I'm just wondering do you is is your performance normativity again more of a an ideal and aspirational thing. Uh, or does it actually describe the way we actually assess people? Yeah, that's great. Um, so it describes how we ought to assess people, and it's certainly not describing how many, many people actually uh, assess people's performances. So in some of my other work, and this is certainly in the background of this book, uh, um, my work on the metaphysics of luck has to do with you know, how we ought to think about luck. It's not so much how people actually think about luck. I think people are generally quite bad at thinking about how to assess performances, particularly about the presence or absence of luck. So, you know, taking the, the philosophy job market example, which is a great example, um, people who fail, we tend to under-attribute credit Um, for their performances. We tend to sort of blame them too much for their failure. And then people who succeed, we tend to over-attribute credit for their performance. We tend to think that, well, not only do we, but they often think of themselves, oh, yes, I deserved it, but that's sort of too much. There's too much uh, interplay of luck. 
And so I think what I'm doing is when talking about performance normativity is describing how we ought to think about performances. It's not very descriptive about how people actually think about performances. Okay, so in in terms of the norms for assertion, can you can you make that vivid? You know how the performance, the the focus on performance that that kind of abstracts away from luck. How that how that works? Yeah. So uh, if you think something like you should assert some proposition only if you have very good evidence for its being true, then that's all it takes. If you assert it based on this evidence, and it turns out that you are just woefully misled, but you know you followed good epistemic practices, then you've suffered some epistemic bad luck. And we don't think that that bad luck should impugn the quality of your performance of the assertion. So we don't think the the bad outcome that it was false says anything about whether you were warranted or not. Okay. Um, so let me, let me just get to the case of, uh, Another sort of context that's presented by Jennifer Lackey again, uh, which she calls the isolated secondhand knowledge case, where I think in her case she has a a doctor who has a uh, a resident or or somebody working in her lab, and the doctor doesn't get a chance to look at a particular X-ray or lab result, but the resident does. And the resident tells the doctor, you know, that the outcome is, you know, the, the person has cancer. And then the doctor meets with the patient. The patient, she tells the patient uh, that he has cancer uh, a bit more gently than that. And then, uh, and then the, the, the patient says, how do you know? And her only reason at least apparently right there more there's more to be said presumably but the only reason apparently is well my resident told me uh can you discuss that case and how 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 you respond to it sure um and as it turns out that i have an article forthcoming in episteme uh developing this view and connecting it to aesthetic assertions and things like uh, a rug being beautiful. So this has to do with issues of expert testimony and can, for example, an expert like a doctor, an oncologist, depend solely on the assertion of another expert for forming an opinion in their domain of expertise. And what Jennifer Lackey argues is no. So in this case, uh, the doctor depends on the assertion of her resident. And we want to say that the doctor knows because, you know, she comes to know through testimony. But Lackey's argument is that it's inappropriate for her in her role as a doctor to then reassert it based only on hearing it from her resident to her patient. And my argument is, well, this is a heavily constructed uh, context and it's constructed very deliberately to make these sorts of assertions appropriate. Uh, in fact, hospitals depend on training up certain people so that we can rely on them as testifiers to save time. So, you know, I've spoken to all sorts of physicians and doctors anytime I have a chance. I'm like, hey, can I ask you about this case? And 
<laughs> every single one of them says, oh yeah, we do this all the time. We have to, we just, we wouldn't have enough time to go look at the test results ourselves. Sometimes we have to ask people, what were the results? Um, so my argument is that, uh, borrowing a phrase from Jerry Fodor, that these epistemic structures are engineered with malice of forethought. We set them up to make these sorts of testimonial exchanges reliable and good sources of information, such that it makes her subsequent reassertion a warranted assertion. Okay. Um, and then in, I guess in the, in the final chapter, you, you mentioned this before, uh, you turn to the basically intersection of some of the things you say about the norms of assertion um, and issues that are related to epistemic injustice, you know, Miranda Fricker's work and so forth. Um, and this is a, I mean, it's just a short kind of chapter at the end, but it, it seems to be a very rich area to think about because there are, there are, for example, I mean, to, to mention the, the case or one of the cases that you focus on is that of gendered norms of assertion. So it's not, it's not as if there are norms of assertion, period. It's that there are norms of assertion for certain people, classes of people, and then norms of assertion for other people. Um, is can you explain how your view intersects with these sorts of broader epistemic issues? Yeah, so this is, I think, a happy consequence, a happy in that I think it predicts things properly, of the context sensitivity of my norm. So if there are patterns of context that break down along axes of identity, such as race or gender or class, then we should expect that what it takes to properly assert based on having a different identity will come out differently. And part of what I'm arguing in that chapter is that these norms do uh, create situations for people with different identities, such that what it takes to properly assert is different. Uh, the gender case, I think, is an interesting one in that I argue, so we have these speech acts that we call indirect speech acts. And that's when you perform one speech act by performing a different speech act. So the famous case is one of uh, a request that we use a question to get to. So can you pass the salt is straightforwardly a question, but it's also performing the speech act of a request. Well, uh, Rebecca Kukla has this great work on discursive injustice, and that's when a speech act of a particular strength or force, because of someone's identity, such as gender, gets treated as a weaker speech act, and then that causes social problems. So the case that she talks about is a woman uh, boss giving a command, but because of her gender, it gets treated like a request, which is a weaker speech act, and carries lower compliance rates. So my work is looking at how sometimes, because of gender, um, but also race, people in certain marginalized identities have to indirectly assert. So sometimes we have to ask a question in order to assert rather than straightforwardly asserting. And that's reflected in what it takes to properly assert for these people is sometimes not to assert at all, but to use the question instead. So, um, 
So that makes asserting itself uh, not just the norms, but the, the, the very act of asserting itself a very context-dependent one, right? Is Definitely. That, um, so going back, I guess, to the very beginning of the book where you lay out what is, what is asserting, um, does this you know, affect how you define what it is to assert, what assertion is? Uh, that, that is an interesting question. So I don't say too much about, uh, I guess, the semantics of how a question can constitute an indirect assertion. Um, so the example that I use is one of a heterosexual couple and uh, in sort of gender norms of North America, we tend to see the pattern where uh, if a woman wants to assert to her male partner that that's a bad idea, she might not make the direct assertion, but she'll indirectly assert that's a bad idea by asking the question, honey, do you really think that's a good idea? <laughs> Part of my argument is that that's not a question. That is an indirect assertion of that's a bad idea. So uh, the argument is that she is expressing the proposition that's a bad idea, although it's not so straightforwardly obvious. So I don't think it challenges any claims about what an assertion is. It just gets tricky to determine what was asserted. And that's sort of a, a big topic in the philosophy of language of, you know, what content was actually expressed. Right, right. And that that in a way feeds into the issue of, asserting something that is either false or is an approximate truth uh, uh, or something in the ballpark. Uh, it, it kind of gets back to the question of how you individuate the, the, not just the speech act, but, but the proposition that is being expressed, Right. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, this gets into questions of things like vagueness, for example. Right. Um, you know, this is not a topic that I take a stand on anywhere in the book. Um, sort of semantic accounts of the nature of what is said. Right. So I, I try to stay neutral on those sorts of questions. Okay. Um, I think we're, we're getting close to uh, running out of time here. Um, so I want to make sure before we close uh, to get some insight into what you are working on now or, or what you see yourself doing as either following up on this book or heading off into new directions. Uh, what, where do you see your near-term or medium-term future philosophically? Yeah, you. the last question you asked was, or one of the recent questions was about sort of how does this work connect to issues of epistemic injustice? Um, and that you said the last chapter is sort of this rich area of thought, and I completely agree. So I am currently working on my follow-up book, which is called Things We Do With Assertions. Uh, it will also be with Palgrave. And the jumping off point of that book is really where this book leaves off. So it's really thinking about how socially rich and sometimes messy our practices of assertion are. So uh, some of the topics will include things like bullshit and propaganda, uh, the epistemology of friendship. Do we owe more credibility to our friends than a stranger? 
things like anonymous assertions. So if we hear or read an online anonymous assertion, should we believe it or not? How does that work? Um, so the assertoric status of secrets. So if we think that someone asserting something to you gives you some permission to reassert it, well, how does that play out with secrets? Um, and then one topic which I'm particularly interested in has to do with the norms of calling in and calling out within activist spaces, but also the epistemology and norms of being called in or called out. So that's what I'm working on right now. Well, what is calling in or calling out? So if someone does something inappropriate, um, so oh. if they say something racist, for example, and you want to draw attention to it, then there are varieties of ways um, a calling out would be just drawing attention. It's like, wow, that was racist. Whereas a calling in is more about a conversation. It's like, hey, that was racist. Let's talk about it. Um, and so I'm trying to puzzle through how we ought to go about doing those. Cool. Um, okay. Well, uh, I think we should probably bring this to a close. Uh, but I do look forward to uh, reading your your new book. It sounds like it's taking taking the things that you discuss in this book to an interesting uh, new dimension. Uh, but for now, I think we are out of time. Uh, so I want to thank you for your time. And it's been a great pleasure to talk with you about your book. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Rachel McKinnon, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the College of Charleston. We've been talking about her new book, The Norms of Assertion, Truth, Lies, and Warrant, which is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.